Thanks, Sarah. If you want to leave your Bibles open, that'll be helpful. And there's a little outline you'll have there. I'll give you some points for the outline soon. You can write them down so it might help you as we get through it. But why don't we pray that God, by this word that he's just spoken to us, would shape and mold us this morning to understand the world through his eyes. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you speak through your word, the Bible, and by your spirit. We pray that as we reflect over what you have to say to us and the events that have got on in human history today, that you'd encourage us, you'd warn us, you'd comfort us, and you'd challenge us to live for you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever had one of those moments in life where your life just flashes before you and you think, maybe this is it? You know those moments? I had a lot of them in high school and primary school when I was standing outside of the principal's office thinking, maybe this is it. You know, maybe my life is flashing before my eyes and I'm a goner. Uh, I had other moments that were like that, like when I went home, giving the results of what the principal said to me to my parents. Pretty sure my life flashed before my eyes at those moments as well, thinking, what are they going to say? What will this be like? But the moment that kind of stands strong and tall in my memory uh, was the time I was laying on an operating table. I was 16 years old. I was about to go into exploratory surgery on my brain. And I looked across and saw next to me the drill that they were going to use to go through my brain and into my skull. And at that moment, I was like, maybe this is it. Uh, maybe this is the last moment I will have on earth. I remember looking across to my mum who was beside me just as we we're heading into the operating theatre. And I didn't know what to say. And it's moments like those that our minds think about, what am I doing on earth? Now, thankfully, when they got inside for that surgery, they found a brain and it was all okay. So I'm, I'm all right. But it's moments like those that make us think, if this was my mo last moment in life, if this is it, would I be satisfied with what I've done and said and, and who I am? Well, this part of the Bible we have recorded for us records that the final, final moments in a man's life and the events that got him there. As we start this next section of Acts chapter 6, we hear of a man who's full of faith and the Holy Spirit called Stephen. He'd been selected just a little earlier as someone who was trustworthy, someone who had a love for people and was trustworthy handling food. He was looking after the, the food distributed to widows who were in need in the early church so the, the apostles could go out and speak of the news of who Jesus was and what he had done. Stephen is a good guy. He's not a trouble-causing guy. In fact, Luke tells us in verse 8, Stephen is full of grace and power. It was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Amazing things were going on. So if you want a note to put down, an outline for what we're looking at, number one, we're looking at the man, Stephen. The man. Then just under that, the land. Now you'll see these on the screen. The man, the land, then the law, put that at the bottom of your left-hand page. And then the top, the temple, and then the choice. The man, the land, the law, the temple, the choice. That's where we're heading. Amazing things were going on through this man, Stephen. But whenever someone else did good, those who felt like it was their role to do good in society got jealous. And so Luke tells us opposition began to arise against Stephen. Look at verse 10 of chapter 6. They were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. The rulers of these kind of uh, this Jewish religious society 
couldn't win in arguments with him, not logically, not fairly. They didn't like what he was saying, they didn't like what was going on, and it threatened their authority. It threatened their very identity about who they were. So they fought dirty. They basically fabricate witnesses to lie about what Stephen has said. They tell half-truths, distorting the truth. But around three main Jewish customs, three areas of the Jewish understanding that are foundational to what the Jews thought. The land, the temple, and the law. For the Jews, these things are key. See, they're the basis of the Jewish faith. So Stephen finds himself here on false testimony, standing before the same high priest that just months earlier killed his saviour. And you can imagine, if it didn't end well for Jesus... I don't think Stephen thought it would end any better for himself. So at this moment where he's standing before this kind of fake trial, this false trial, it doesn't have a hope in the world, Stephen doesn't hold back. There's something that's so important for him, some truth that as his life flashes before his eyes and the Spirit of God strengthens his trust and dependence on Jesus, he doesn't compromise. He lives to the end the way he ought to live to the end. He speaks the most important truth in human history. It got me thinking, you know, if you're going to die for something, it better be something good, right? You don't want to die for whether you're a Ford or a Holden follower, or kind of whether you're a Mac or a PC person. Like, that's a dumb thing to die for. It's a dumb thing to argue about as well. But Stephen here is so convinced of this truth, he doesn't flinch, even though he knows the cost is massive. And you need to notice that the message he brings, the words that he speaks in this fake court, isn't new. They come in the context of of history, of what's been said before to these people, the Jews, of of what's been done before. In fact, he speaks of what has gone on for 1,500 years earlier. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. Brothers and fathers, he replied, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. And said to him, leave your country and relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Three big promises that God had given to his people 1,500 years earlier were that there would be a land that they could dwell in. That he gave them a law working out how to live that way and a temple, a place where God would be with his people. So let's look at number one, the land. The land. Jerusalem was so important to the Israelites. It was the place that God promised them in Genesis 12, a place that would be their own as he made that promise to Abraham. And it had been their controlling direction for 1,500 years since the exodus out of Egypt when they were there in slavery and God took them out through the Red Sea and brought them through into the promised land. It would be their own place. There wouldn't be people kicked around under slavery anymore, but they'd have their own place and there God would rule his people. Now, according to a popular opinion at the time, They kind of viewed the land as though God would give special privileges to anyone who dwelt in the land. Those living on that real estate in Palestine, it's almost as if that was their special ticket to being, well, blessed by God. If we're in the land, no one can touch us because God's given us our land. It's almost as if the land had become so important to the Jews that the king who was promised to rule from it was pushed aside. And Stephen, at this moment, He will not compromise. He needs to speak the truth. And he wants to remove their false confidence in the land and fix their eyes on the Lord. He wants to go from the land to the Lord. The argument goes like this. 
God revealed himself to Abraham. He blessed him, but not when he was in the promised land that he was going to get. In fact, he never really entered into it. He gave it well before. The blessing came before he was in the land. And so verses 9 to 16, Stephen shows it's the same for the 12 sons of Jacob. God blessed them through Joseph. Where did the blessing happen? In Egypt. (laughs) They, They were blessed there. The only part at that point in time where there's the 12 sons of Jacob who'd be the 12 tribes of Israel, the only part of the promised land they inherited was a family tomb. That was it. And then in 17 to 22, he goes on and explains the example of Moses to say the same thing. God spoke to Moses where? Not in the promised land. Moses didn't enter in. Remember, God took him up to Mount Nebo and showed him the promised land but said, you can't enter in. But God spoke to him at the burning bush in Midian, not in the promised land. The great miracles of the people of Israel happened in Egypt, the Red Sea, and the desert, not in the promised land. Stephen is saying, it's not about the land. You guys have got so much security and confidence in this place you're in, here in Jerusalem, that you've missed what is most important. And he says what's important in verse 37. Have a look with me. This Moses, who was their father, who they trust, who they've been following, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites... God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. God had promised that he'd raise up a prophet like Moses. And Stephen is saying, you must not let the land God promised you eclipse the Lord, the prophet God sent to rule that land. He's showing them that their security is not in the place they're in, in Jerusalem. And in fact, that that's being a stumbling block to them. He then goes on to show the second stumbling block that they've got, and it's the law. Point number three, the law. Acts 7, 38. Moses is the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. So he's explained the land and then says that Moses who got blessed outside the land, who never got to enter in, he was also given the law. Oracles from God. He was given direction of how to respond as God's people to God's saving work because God took them out of Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea. He saved them from the suffering they were under and said, I will take you into this land that I have promised. And the law became the foundation documents of how Israel were to respond to the God who'd already saved them. Have a look, Exodus 19 verse 3. Let's go back and, and see what happened. Exodus 19 verse 3. Moses went up the mountain to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you'll carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all people, although the whole earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words you had to say to the Israelites. God's saying, since I've saved you, then this is how you need to live. If you continue living this way, you will be my people. This is what it looks like to be my people. So you understand why the Jews, while they were excited about the law, they had God's way of living. And he goes on in Exodus 20 to get the Ten Commandments that are written down. And they're a great way of living. Having the law, having God's ways and plans and purposes set Israel apart from every other nation. Because they were God's people. They were his possession. What happened is they got so infatuated with having the law that they thought it was kind of like a genie in a bottle. We've got the law. We've got God's way. 
They were so infatuated with the family name, we're God's people, that they didn't live with the family values. So where's an example of that at the moment, where someone is so infatuated with the family name, they don't live with the family values? And What struck me was, I don't know if it's true, but the whole royal thing that's going on at the moment, with Prince Andrew and Prince Charles, and there's something going on there. It seems like these two are so infatuated with the position of the family name, that they've forgotten how to live with the family values. That's definitely going on. So, so much bickering going on and fighting, if you can believe what the papers say, which you probably can't. So... But so it was with Israel. The possession of the law became more important to them with the people that God gave the law to, rather than actually obeying it, rather than actually living it out. Look at verse 39 of Acts 7. Our ancestors, our ancestors, were unwilling to obey Moses. Instead, they pushed him aside and their hearts turned back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to suffering in Egypt. They said, that's where we want to be. They, they told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to the idol and were celebrating what their hands had made. God's just spoken from the mountain. He's just saved them out of Egypt and given them, literally, the law is being written on the mountain. They're like, nah, it's taking too long. And they even give up at that point. So look at what happens, verse 42. God turned away and gave them up to worship the stars of heaven. Stephen tells this to these Jewish leaders who are gathered here that have got him on trial. The people, us, we didn't even listen to Moses. We haven't listened to the other prophets either, to Isaiah, to Elijah, to Jeremiah. God's given us his law and his word, but we don't hear it. We do nothing with it. We think, oh, it's special. I've got the Bible. I've got God's word, but we don't open it. We don't let it affect our lives in verse 51, Stephen so warmly says, You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. He's pointed, As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? In other words, your whole family likeness has been just persecuting God's spokesman. You've got the law, but you think you're special because you have it, not because you listen to it. Moses even says God will raise up for you a prophet like him from amongst the brothers and sisters. That prophet, Stephen says, is Jesus. He is the final word of God. He's the one that has just been crucified in this very courtroom. You're so fixated on your land and your law that you've missed what they all point to. It's not just the land and the law they've misunderstood here. They've misunderstood God and God's presence amongst them as well. And that's where we get uh, to the point, the temple. The temple. See, the temple was the pinnacle of Jerusalem. It was kind of on this high point that stood above the rest of the city. It was towering in the presence, visible from everywhere around to say, this is the place the God of the Israelites dwells. See, God had promised King David that David's son would build a permanent dwelling place for God. And rather than carrying around a tent in the wilderness, or putting up a tent that was there in, in Jerusalem once they'd settled in the land, they would have a permanent place for God. You can almost hear the Jews at this point, like, we've got a temple. God's on our side. He's with us. Look, his temple's here. How great are we? Like a little kid skipping around. I'm the king of the castle because God's got his temple here. They're so excited about it, they don't actually think about what it means to live in the presence of God. They treat God like a good luck charm. 
We've got our God locked up in our temple. No one can touch us. Like a genie in a bottle. There's nothing else we need. Have you not seen how great that architectural feat is of Herod's temple? That house of the symbolic presence of God. We are untouchable. Who are you coming in here? Stephen, you schmuck. Speaking these things to us. Get away. Acts 7.46 David found favour in God's sight and asked he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon, rather, who built him a house. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will my resting place be? Did not my hand make all these things? It's not about the temple, but the God who the temple was made for. You can't contain God to a building. That's what the prophet Isaiah had told you. That's why I'm quoting Isaiah to you now. Heaven is his throne and the earth is merely a footstool. He's, he's God. What kind of house can you build for the God who made everything? Now, it's like the question, what do you buy as a gift for the person who has everything? Right? Even that's hard, right? Buying gifts, Christmas time, we're trying to work out what we buy for people. Imagine trying to build a house for the God who made the universe. Kind of like a child who's desperately trying to build a sandcastle for their dad. At the beach, they're putting it all together. They're putting nice little shells all around it. They're desperately trying to protect and maintain it from the incoming tide, all the while ignoring the dad's life-giving words, look out, there's a tsunami coming. The kid's like, no, 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 I've got, I've got your house, dad. I'm building this little sandcastle for you and keeping it safe. And the dad's crying out, there's a tsunami coming. Run to me and I'll protect you. And like, no, no, we've got your house. You love your temple, but ignore the one you built it for. Do you see what Stephen's saying in this final speech, in his last words, what's so important he's willing to die for? All these things that Israel thought were so important, all these things they found their security in, they all point to Jesus. They're pointers to something better and greater, and his name is Jesus. And the people in this very same courtroom, the very same court that's kind of gathered together, just killed Jesus. Holding on to your law and, and, and your land and, and your temple. He's what the whole of human history was pointing forward to. Stephen's like, have you not seen who Jesus is? Look at him, verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, you do also. He's fuming at them. It's going to lead to his death, but there is something so important here for him. Do you not see it is all about Jesus? Human history is all about Jesus. He's come to fulfill what God had promised. and He's the place where God meets with his people. He's He's the one who has come to give life forever. He's the king who will rule forever. But they're so excited about their little trinkets and the things that they have along the way. Jesus said in John 5, You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. Luke records Jesus' words after his death and resurrection. These are my words in verse Luke 24, 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
the land, the law, the temple, the whole Old Testament is talking about Jesus. And that's what Stephen is showing them. This is not something new. This is not something coming to threaten it. This is what it's all about. This is what life is about. Abraham's about Jesus. Israel was about Jesus. The patriarchs are about Jesus. The Exodus was about Jesus. Moses is about Jesus. Joseph is about Jesus. David is about Jesus. Solomon, the temple, the priesthood, the kingship. It's all about Jesus. I want us to note for a second, do you see how important it is to know biblical history? To know what has gone on in the world around us? The story of God's family was... Stephen's family story, this was the story that shaped him and helped him to understand who his king was and helped him to understand life. He's here in this situation, I don't think he was prepped for. I don't think he'd had a kind of a sign or a vision to say, hey Stephen, it's going to be your last words today. Why don't you just whack up a little sermon where you go through the whole of the scriptures and summarize them and how they point to Jesus so you're ready? He just knew it. Because this is the way God had worked. This is the way God was working to point everyone to Jesus. It was the story that shaped Stephen's life and pointed forward to the most important person in history. And that is what Jesus had seen. So you never know when you're going to need your Bible. You never know when you're going to need to be shaped and molded by what God has said. But here we see Stephen knows what God has done. The Old Testament is not just some flat old book about old dead people that we don't need to care about because now we've got Jesus. It helps us to understand who he really is. And that has incredible implications for us all. And I need to ask this morning, have you seen that your life, your existence, your future, for everything that has happened is all about Jesus? That he makes sense of why we're alive. That he... He makes sense of what the future is and what I'm to do here and now and that that I need to understand what's happened before in the Old Testament to see he is the promised king. He is the one that will rule forever. Have you seen that all of life is built to focus on Jesus? If you don't understand Jesus, I'm going to say you don't understand life. You might be here checking out the things of God. You might be here going, what is this Jesus? He is everything. And that is the truth Stephen was willing to die for. Is Jesus your everything? Now today, for us, it's unlikely that the issues of land and law and the temple are things that would distract us from Jesus. There are some that spend their lives trying to to reinstall the temple and to win back the land. But we see in Revelation 21, God says, I see a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared like a bride adorned for husband. The new Jerusalem are those that have come to Jesus. It's a new people, not a new place. The new place that we get is the whole earth. It includes the promised land, absolutely. It's never short of that promise. But it's everything, a new earth. And you see the holy Jerusalem coming down out of the clouds all around Jesus. And the temple, Jesus said when he was on earth, destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. He's talking about, I I am the place you meet with God. If you want to meet God, you come to me when I die and then three days later rise again. You see, there is life, here is God. 
And for those who trust in Jesus, he lives in them by his spirit. God is present, not in the temple, not in church. When we come to church, we don't gather to, to worship God's presence as if he's somehow specially here. No, we gather the God, we gather around the God who's spoken his word. He's present by his word. But he's also present in us by his spirit. The same spirit that was pushing forward Stephen to hold to this truth. Now, of those three, the law is probably the one we get the easiest distracted by today. We think we can be good enough for God. We think we can do enough for God. You ever ask someone, you know, why, why do you think you know, God would let you into heaven? The most common answer I get when I ask that question is, well, because I've done good things. You know, I've been a good person. I haven't murdered. I haven't done too much stuff. I, I, I give to charities. And we can come along and treat the law as a checklist of oh, how much have I done for God, thinking we can be good enough for him. But again, Jesus fulfills the law. He's the only one that kept it perfectly. He kept the law for us and says that those who trust in him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone who comes to me will have eternal life. I am the way to have the law fulfilled in you. He died our death so we didn't need to face the punishment for death, for rejecting God. He is the perfect law keeper. We can't be good enough for God. We need to come to the one who's done it for us. But it got me thinking there are a whole host of things that distract us from the importance of Jesus, apart from just the law and the land and the temple. The world around us, relationships, fun, finances, family, entertainment, career. So many things that are around us that become the center of our life and provide security like those three things, the law, the land and the temple, were giving to Israel. They're all good things, but they're not God. They're given by him, but they aren't him. All right, we can so easily miss that life, that history, that humanity is all about Jesus because these other things come and take up the radar of our life. Well, what is it for you? Well, what do you fall asleep thinking about each night? What things distract your mind from what's going on? Or where are you pouring your emotional energy into? What things do you find security in other than Jesus? It's a helpful point to ask as Stephen challenges this Jewish court. Is there something in the center of your life other than Jesus? Well, that leaves us with a choice. And we get a pretty strong warning in this passage today. Hear the warning again. Acts 7.51 You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. In other words, you're refusing to let God shape and mold your heart to say that life is all about Jesus. It's interesting, just as a side note, sometimes people come along and say to resist, this, resist the Spirit is to resist the, the gifts of the Spirit. To say, oh, if you're resisting the Spirit, then you're not seeking miraculous gifts and you're not seeking signs and wonders. But Stephen charges them. I mean, the people loved coming for the signs and the wonders and the healing. Sure, it made them a bit jealous. But the things they were resisting was that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised King. See, to resist the Spirit is to resist His testimony, that Jesus fulfills everything. That it's all about Him, that life is about Him, and that is the role of the Spirit. You see it consistently through Acts. Every time He points people to it all being about Jesus. 
I'm going to ask today, are you resisting the Spirit? Are you coming along and hearing the Spirit's word in front of us here in the Scriptures? And saying, yeah, but nah. Or yeah, kind of, but not all of my life. Or I don't really want to serve Jesus in every area. I'm not totally convinced. Can I encourage you today not to do that? To recognize that human history is about Him. To come and ask God to help you understand who Jesus is and what He has done and let that shape the way you live every moment of your life. Are you living your life in the incredible joy of living entirely for Jesus? Life as it ought to be, knowing He's died your death and will come back again and has an eternity in store, a new heaven and a new earth. What does it look like to live life for Jesus? Well, the answer is Stephen. Stephen. We might not be facing death as a consequence for speaking the truth today, but the consequences of not speaking the truth today and not living in line with the truth are exactly the same today as they were for Stephen then. It's the same truth he's fighting to maintain. It's the same truth we need to speak. It's the same message. That's not changed. It's the same salvation that is at stake and the same glory of God. Look what happens next. Verse 54 of Acts 7. When the Jewish court heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. After he's spoken these truths, after he's pointed to Jesus in all that he's done, he uses a phrase in this vision that he sees that's borrowed from Daniel chapter 7, something spoken of in the Old Testament about the one who would come. There is one coming, a son of man, one who is like a man, but he's coming from God and is God. And his position will be ruler over all kingdoms, ruler over all, and he will, he will sit on that throne forever. As, as Stephen is being challenged about who is king and who is in control and who has authority, he points to the true and living God. Come with me to Daniel 7 and get a picture of this vision. I continued watching in the night visions. And suddenly one, like a son of man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, which is God, and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Oh, Stephen was looking forward to that day when he would meet that king who would rule forever. He had met him in the person of Jesus. And now in this vision, he had seen him installed in his position at the right hand of God, ruling over all authority, ruling over everything. Every ruler, every authority, every king in a dominion that would not pass away, that would last forever. Jesus is saying, so Stephen is saying that Jesus is this son of man. He's the ruler over all people. Again, it's all about him. Life is not about coming to him just any way we want, but coming to Jesus as God, as the one who died for our sins, as the one who offers life forever, the resurrected king and the ruler over us all, even this Jewish court and even this high priest. 
And what's interesting to note as Stephen sees this picture of the glory that is there at the right hand of God, seeing God's glory and and seeing um, Jesus standing there as the Son of Man with all dominion and authority given to him, what's interesting to note is that every other time in the Bible when that picture is spoken of, it's spoken of the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. The one who is seated at that position. But in this vision, this once and once only, we see Jesus standing. It's as if at that moment, Stephen proclaimed the reality of how all of human history had been about Jesus. And he did it to the end. And as he's about to die, God showed him the picture of what he's about to see. And Jesus stood in his position, opened his arms and said, Welcome home, good and faithful servant. I am the King of kings, the Lord of lords. I am in control. You have faithfully proclaimed my name. Welcome home. And at that, they picked up rocks and stoned Stephen to death. Verse 59, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. After saying this, he died. To the point of death, just like his saviour, Stephen's desire was that all people might know Jesus. And all people might see he is the fulfillment of all human history. And we see that forgiveness is central to this news he spoke. Not only did Stephen experience the forgiveness of God in Jesus, but he expressed that even to his enemies, even at his death to the people that were killing him. I'm not like that to my enemies. So often I'd prefer them die than me. I'd be like, no, take them, Lord. (laughs) I'll stay. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. After saying this, he died. See, you can't be forgiven yourself and hold bitterness against those that have treated you the way you've treated your God. You just can't do it. It's just hypocritical. As Stephen dies, Jesus stands and welcomes the first Christian martyr home. How encouraging is that? To know that our Saviour is at the right hand of God and all authority has been given to Him. That death is not our end. There will be a new heaven and a new earth for those who trust in Jesus. Stephen faithfully walks home into the arms of his Saviour. See, death ultimately reveals what each of us truly are. Stephen's lived his last hours as Christ did. He spoke his last words as Christ did. He stood and died trusting God's words just as Christ did his Father's words. He stood tall to the end just like Jesus did. Let me ask, if today were your final day, what would others write about you? About what you lived for? about what you you said and did and how you shaped your life. Let me ask another question. What truth is so important you would die for it? If your life suffered to the point of death for the sake of others knowing the true and living God and for the glory of the true and living God, would you say it's worth it? It's worth it to die for this truth. It's worth it to point people to Jesus, even if it means my death. Would you say that? 
Stephen would. And Stephen did. For that day he saw what all those who trust in Jesus to the end will see. The Son of Man at the right hand of the Father, raised to his feet with arms wide open. Well done, my good and faithful servant. The story of Stephen is a story that compels us all to live for Jesus to that very last day, even if it means that day comes sooner. And the question for us, the question we need to decide every minute and every day is this, will you live for Jesus? Let me pray. Father God, we are so thankful that Jesus has come as a fulfillment of the whole Old Testament, the whole of human history, as the one who is King of kings and Lord over all, installed at your right hand. We confess that so often we forget that reality. We forget what Jesus has done and we think the world around us is going to come in and, and, and the temptations to give up or to compromise on the truth and to see other things at the center of our lives. Lord, we, we fall there all the time. You know us. But we ask you would give us the clarity you have given Stephen, that we would look up to see Jesus at your right hand and that that would propel us into your world to live for the truth no matter what because you've saved us in your son. And in his name we pray. Amen.